Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And make sure that you take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. So if that's iTunes, tune in, Google, or, uh, Google Play or SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, we are pleased to have joining us on the phone Professor Robert McKenzie. Uh, he is a senior fellow at the New America uh, at New America, I'm sorry, and director of its Muslim Diaspora Initiative. He's a domestic and foreign policy analyst and scholar of the Middle East and North Africa with 15 years of applied research and work experience for the U.S. government, private sector, and academia. An anthropologist by training, McKinsey is an expert in displaced persons, refugee settlement, and integration in Arab and Muslim communities in the United States and Europe. So we're pleased to welcome him to Radio Islam. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great it, to be on. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, um, first of all, uh, in April, I'm just going to just dive right in. April of 2017, right? We are living in a very, I guess every generation feels that they're living in interesting times. But we can say that since the election and lead, actually leading up to the election of our current president, President uh, Trump, that uh, incidents of hate crime or anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant sentiment uh, have, have seen significant rises. And you have done, uh, in April of 2017, you established the Muslim Diaspora Initiative. Can you tell us a bit about that? What, what was the goal and what was the, uh, the impetus for that um, effort? Sure thing. So I, I've spent uh, the, the best part of the last 20 years working on uh, North Africa and the Middle East. And uh, in 2015, the Brookings Institute uh, invited me to uh, to join their team and, and work on um, two broad topics. Uh, one, the Syrian refugee crisis, and two, uh, Muslim communities in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was there that I, I spent quite a bit of time going back and forth to Europe, uh, working with the Germans, specifically uh, the Chancellor, to think about how to receive and integrate uh, a million um, refugees and migrants. And I subsequently moved to New America, and for all the reasons that you touched on, um, it was the presidential election cycle that, you know, there was just this toxic environment, and Muslims were punching back. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling all over the country um, trying to um, uh, garner interest in a set of studies that would look at and amplify the contributions and impact of American Muslims at the local level, because I was hearing from folks, uh, well, it was just clear to me that, that we know very little about the impact and contributions of Muslims at the local level. And there's all kinds of positives taking place all over the country mm-hmm. um, that folks don't know about, which I, I'll circle back to in a minute. But when I was traveling across the country, one of the things I kept hearing from Muslim community leaders is that they were thrilled to hear about this project looking at local contributions, but they were saying there were lots of bad things happening across the country that were being overlooked um, on a national level. And, and so, you know, I asked them to give me some examples, and they said, well, you know, someone threw a rock through our window with a note tied on it, go home Muslims. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, a woman having her jab ripped off and so on and so forth. And so, you know, the, the researcher in me wanted to, uh, you know, one, see, uh, I didn't question whether these incidents were happening, but I wanted to get a sense of what, how much worse was it um, during that period compared to previous periods. And so I pulled together a team of researchers, and we spent um, about 10 months uh, sifting through um, data to get a sense of, of what what's going on across the country. And um, for those that want to you know, look at this, it's worth just going to New America, and um, you can look at our anti-Muslim activities uh, in the United States project, and, and you see an enormous spike and activities. Mm-hmm. And you've got two things that are going on. You've got, one, the rhetoric by presidential candidates. So you've got Chris Christie saying he wouldn't take in a five-year-old orphan from Syria, suggesting that there's something fundamentally wrong with Muslims. You've got Donald Trump saying all of the things that he said, and so on and so forth. And so you've got um, all of that rhetoric combined with some of the spectacular terrorist attacks in Europe. And the end result is, you know, um, violence and crimes against Muslims here uh, across the country. So right. we've documented this, and we wanted to go back a few election cycles. So we go back to 2012, and what you'll see is that um, there's no question that there is definitely a relationship uh, between uh, not only the terrorist attacks, but also um, the pres- presidential rhetoric. And I, I mentioned the terrorist attacks because... Um, if you go back and you look at our data set, um, following the Boston Marathon attack and following Charlie Hebdo, there, there wasn't an enormous spike. Mm-hmm. But you see this in 2016, 15 and 16, because you don't just have these attacks. You have people who are running for president of the United States who are saying horrible things about Muslims and ginning up a lot of fear and uh, confusion uh, across the country. You know, there's there's something to we, we hold very dear the idea of, of free speech, you know, being able to uh, to openly dissent. Um, you know, that that is there's nothing probably more American uh, than that. And but when that free speech is coupled with, or it comes attached to uh, people who have uh, influence, then depending on how that speech is used, you know, we could be we could be looking at. Uh, the makings of, um, you know, of a mass movement, kind of a co-signing on creating an other group, a group that, you know, that's outside of the the, the pale of humanity. So uh, saying that, do you think in your research, have you seen that the, um, I guess the sentiments that have been, have been shared by uh, those who are seeking uh, political, um, they were looking, they were uh, looking to be elected, that their words had impact on people who actually had no real firsthand knowledge about the people that they were forming opinions on? There's no question, but, but to just take it a step further, mm-hmm. what we, what one of the categories that we look at um, is entitled anti-Muslim actions and statements by elected and appointed officials. Right. And uh, we, we, we look at, at this category because elected and appointed officials at the state and local level are voices of authority. Um, And just to pull out one example from July 2017 in Kalkuska, Michigan, um, the village president there uh, wrote on Facebook calling for the killing of, and I quote, every last Muslim. 
and he refused to apologize for this. And I, I'm wow. giving you one example, but this is the most senior elected official in that village. And what does that signal to, you know, everybody else there? And all of a sudden we're seeing, a, you know, a normalization of, of, of this hate. Mm-hmm. And so this should really, really concern us. And, and, and we should be concerned if this is happening to any community, frankly. Right. This is not, you know, and one of the things we've learned uh, through our research is, you know, the folks who hate Muslims also hate Jews and hate blacks and hate gays and hate women and Mexicans and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, what what happened in this previous election cycle is that it has energized and mobilized um, a lot of folks across the country um, to take actions against minorities. And, and Muslims have, um, as I said earlier, um, both physically and both um, figuratively and, and, um, and in a very real sense, become a, a punching bag um, at, at, at the local level. Right, right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just say the, 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 the website so folks can, can go there, uh, newamerica.org. Uh, and I've, I've gone, I've looked at, I've looked at some of the, the data, and it is, it, yeah, it's, it's disturbing. Um, it's extremely disturbing. Uh, let, let me ask this. When it comes to elected officials who are making statements, uh, like the one you just mentioned, um, what is the, what's the recourse, especially when you have, uh, when, you have when they take positions where they, they dig their heels in and they're not willing to, they're not, they're not going to give a retraction, an apology, they're not resigning? What, is that, what does that say about where we're at right now? Well, it, it, it should concern us, right? And I can tell you in the case of Calcutta, Michigan, uh, this gentleman was um, recently voted out of office, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, you know, which is a positive sign. Right. But we're seeing these kinds of negative uh, activities taking place across the country. And, it, it, you know, it's very disheartening. And, you know, what our project doesn't capture is what this means to Muslim communities when, at the local level, someone severs a pig's head off mm-hmm. and throws it through the window of a mosque. And it, beyond just the incident, the crime itself, I mean, this really, really drives fear into people's hearts. And when you've got people throwing bricks through windows that say, go home, and I'm hearing from those same communities, this is where we were born and raised. This is home. We pay our taxes. We're making contributions to our neighbors and neighborhoods and to our education systems. Um, it should concern us. So I will tell you, you know, if, if there's one silver lining in this really toxic period that we're in, mm-hmm. it's that I'm seeing across the country um, Muslims and other minority communities are getting fired up in a positive way, and they are channeling their energy, and they're getting involved. Yes. Um, and, you know, one great example of that is that we've seen over 100 Muslims run for uh, elected office this cycle. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it, it's true with other minority communities as well. So I, I hope that 10, 15, 20 years from now, um, and I expect, frankly, that we're going to see some men and women who, who are going to tell us the reason I'm a congressman now or a congresswoman or a senator or I'm governor is because I was 10 years old and I couldn't believe what I was hearing from the president of the United States. And I said, when I grow up, I was going to go to college and I was going to go run for office and, and so on. I, I think that's coming. And I think that is going to be one of the real uh, silver linings. So while we've got uh, a president 
who seems determined to continue to throw red meat to his base mm-hmm. uh, to get them fired up against minorities. At the same time, we're, we're seeing a lot of different communities come together uh, and get involved in ways that, that I don't think we would under any other set of circumstances. Let, let, let me say this, Bobby. I think that when, to, to go back to the point about elected officials um, being the being the voice of hate, uh, and then that that voice being transmitted uh, and taken up, whatever that whatever that sentiment is, taken up by the uh, by the electorate, they begin to see themselves as acting as de facto um, as agents of the state. You know, in their in their rejection of whichever population has been has been demonized. Um, to, to that point, let me ask, when it comes to Muslims and the research that, that you've done, uh, do you see that there, is a, that there is an assumption that all Muslims look a particular way, that Muslims are going to be visible? Because within these uh, protests, within these uh, uh, incidents of, of violence, they, they seem to be more centered around Arab or um, uh, Indo-Pakistani Sure. Um, you know, uh, uh, phenotypical, you know, uh, sets. There's no question that that race and ethnicity play into this, right? And it's it's fear of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of the problem, frankly, is that, you know, we know uh, very little about, you know, Muslims at the local level. It's it's why my research focuses on not only the, the, the anti-Muslim activities at the state and local level, and so we're trying to pull apart myths and misinformation, but we also are doing a lot of research around the impact and contributions of Muslims. And the reason for this is so you, you see, uh, you know, some of these local um, elected officials who are saying horrible things, mm-hmm. um, but you also see, uh, you know, frankly, other uh, elected officials who are saying, hold on, no, that's not true, they're, they're just like us. But and while I, I think it's great for them, for people to be standing up and saying this, it's largely just good sentiment. And so what we're trying to do here at New America is use scholarship and data mm-hmm. to shape a discussion, both at the national level, but also at the state and local level, that will inform uh, the media, elected officials, and, and um, uh, you know, uh, a range of actors, so that they will have facts in front of them. So we're not just going to be talking about good sentiment. We're going to be talking about who these folks really are. And, you know, the truth is most Americans don't know that, you know, a thousand Muslims serve in the New York uh, police force. Mm -hmm. They're protecting, you know, all of us, uh, New Yorkers, that is, uh, every day with their lives. You know, most Americans overlook the fact that a disproportion of Muslims, something around uh, the order of 10%, um, are medical doctors in this country, and they're serving us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we need to know more about, you know, what Muslims are doing because I think it's a great way to pull apart the myths and misinformation. Um, so, yeah, that's that. But to your point, there's no question. I guess I, 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 I'm deeply, deeply concerned by the actions and statements of elected and appointed officials at the local level. And, you know, I'm deeply concerned that over 30 you know, governors wanted to suspend refugee resettlement because they were worried about Muslim refugees coming in from the Middle East. Right. But I, you know, I also want to find real solutions to these problems. And in my mind, it's about trying to better understand uh, 
what Muslim communities look like at the local level. And I think doing that will really dispel a lot of these myths. I mean, you know, one of the biggest myths out there is, you know, creeping Sharia. You know, there's so many Americans that are worried about Muslims trying to, you know, push Sharia on the U.S. And, and the truth of the matter is most of these Americans can't even tell you what Sharia is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and let's forget the fact that I don't think there's a place in the country that I know of, maybe I'm wrong, where Muslim communities are actually advocating for Sharia law to be implemented. Right. And so, you know, there's just so much misinformation, and I want to try and do my small part in this, but the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, you know, over 100 Muslims ran for office. They did an enormous uh, yeah. amount of work just by putting themselves out there and explaining themselves and the candidacy. So, I, like I said, I, I think there are a lot of negatives, but I also think that these negatives are leading to a lot of positives that are going to have long-term uh, and enormously positive impacts. You know, and speak, and I think that's, that's uh, ex- extremely important to be able to see that, that silver lining or see the seeds of a positive change that, are going to, that we expect to see uh, coming. And as you mentioned about, you know, maybe... 15 years from now or 20 years, whatever, uh, where we'll have Muslim uh, congressmen or, you know, or, or more, I should say. Um, sure. and, 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 and they look back and they trace their, uh, you know, that, that moment that they got energized to some of the, the negative and hateful rhetoric uh, that's being, you know, uh, uh, spewing out there. Um, but there's also the other side of that. Could this also be where, People who did not know, and this is where that that data comes into play, because people assume, uh, and I think all of us, we assume that if we're not the actual source of the the hate, we're not the source of, uh, you know, the the vitriol, then then we're okay. But not realizing that maybe our neighbor or the the, the somebody the, on the house, you know, uh, the neighbor of the house uh, over from us, that they're actually a part of that. And that data, it shows, I think you had on there, um, it, was, it was about uh, the most uh, anti-Muslim, uh, either, I think it was hate crimes that took place was in California, but then it was per capita was like Maine. That's um, right. And just this idea of people in those places maybe saying, wow, I don't see myself that way, and I'm not that way, but obviously there are people around me who are. So that could be kind of the, the impetus for their own engagement that's uh, that's right i mean i i you know california texas new york um florida michigan are the worst states in terms of the you know the greatest number of incidents uh in terms of per capita maine is is the worst state um but you know in california texas and new york and in new york you know interestingly enough um new york is a particularly bad place Mm. Uh, i mean there's a lot of of anti-muslim activities taking place there um, but you know the, the you know these incidents are jarring and, and um, I, I just think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about Muslims. This is my you know I, I, my perception uh, as a researcher, but just uh, as an American. And I, I was talking to um, a Muslim family up in Michigan, mm-hmm. and I, I was having dinner at, at their home, and, and the wife, who's not bailed, was telling me that she she's a, she's a cardiologist. She was telling me that some of her colleagues, she overheard them talking about Muslims being this way and that way. And she said to them, you know, I'm Muslim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the colleague, one of her colleagues responded, oh, I didn't realize that, and then followed up with, but you're not like them. Right, right. And I thought, wow, you know, hearing this. And I, the problem is that, that, you know, 
folks just don't know, uh, you know, much about Muslim communities. And this leads to um, a lot of problems. And, of course, all of this is on the back of enormous muscle memory from 9-11, right. where, you know, your average American, they're, you know, they, they've got uh, deep fear um, from 9-11. And, of course, you know, since then we've had, a, you know, a number of spectacular attacks that get played over and over again you know, on CNN and Fox, on every outlet, right? And so yeah. this is what people see. And people don't know that, you know, uh, that Muslims are involved in all kinds of important contributions. And, and this is the part that needs to be remedied. Right. And it's, it, it, it's not easy when you've got folks at the highest level who hold elected office mm-hmm. or running for elected office who are saying, keep them out. Well, when it comes to uh, dispelling myths, is the is is there a greater difficulty in presenting information to people that you don't necessarily know? I, I'm I'm sort of assuming that just in just in having relationships with folks, people are more likely to take the word of somebody that they know as opposed to uh, the stranger, right? Um, is 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 this idea of dispelling myths around the Muslim community? Is it more difficult with some than others? Well, it's a it's a it's a great question, and you know the the work that I'm doing is is not advocacy, it's not activism, mm-hmm. um, it's scholarship, yeah. and I'm I'm trying to to reach really three groups of people who have, in my mind, the greatest reach, and and trying to inform. Uh, the public, mm-hmm. in no order. Journalists, policymakers, and elected officials. And, you know, we're using the scholarship and data that we have to do everything we can to, you know, circulate it among journalists, policymakers, and elected officials, because if they're informed, um, they are best positioned to reach a really wide and diverse uh, set of audiences. And so that's what we're doing. But I, I don't, you know, to your excellent point, you know, there's going to be folks out there who are uh, have cold, extreme views about Muslims and other minorities, and I, I frankly I don't know how to engage them. Nor is it my job to like try and figure out how to engage them. But I, I do know how to engage journalists, policymakers, and elected officials. Right. And my impression is when I talk to um, elected officials and policymakers, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, mm-hmm. when they start to hear about these incidents, they get really troubled by it. And this is the case in, in even the states that are, that are, you know, quite Republican. And, you know, people, I think, also I, on, on the left have this perception that, you know, all Republicans engage in this. And I, I don't find that to be the case. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've talked to some pretty uh, senior officials in Texas. And when I put this data in front of them and I say, look, you've got a mosque that was burnt down. You've got someone who was shot, someone who was stabbed, Muslims, I mean, who were shot or stabbed there, a woman who was punched in the face because she's wearing a veil. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not American. That's not our values or principles. And, and I think when folks start to see this, um, it's jarring and it makes them realize that, that we can and should be doing better. Hmm. I would compare your work on the, 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 the scope and importance of it um, very much uh, very much in the same vein as that of uh, Ida B. Wells and her documentation of lynchings of African Americans um, and those numbers and those situations that had to be 
uh, that had to be put on paper for people to see to realize that this was not an isolated incident, but a a, a full blown um, just a just a storm. Um, so you've you've been you've been recording uh, incidents that are uh, available um, uh, as far as the within the, the public information uh, sphere. How far back do you go? We go back to 2012, and the reason for this is that I, I you know, I, I really do want to look at this, you know, with with cold eyes, nonpartisan eyes, yeah. and a lot of the work that looks at hate incidents mm-hmm. focuses only on, you know, the election cycle or since then, and it becomes very partisan. So we wanted to go back to the 2012 election cycle, which gives us, you know, two presidential cycles, but it also gives us... Um, a couple of midterms. Mm-hmm. And with this, we get a sense of, of what's going on. And, and there's no question, if you look at, if you look at our, our, our project online, that, you know, the spectacular terrorist attacks in Europe, you know, you had the Paris attacks, um, Brussels, but you also have San Bernardino, you've got Orlando here, you've got East France, and, uh, Manchester, and then uh, more recently, the, the New York City truck attack. These attacks, um, you know, had a, had a real impact, but the attacks alone didn't, because if they did, as you, if you look at our project, we would have seen the same result from the Boston Marathon attack and the Charlie Hebdo attack. And the difference is, the, the, during the Boston Marathon attack, during that period, and the, we didn't have anybody running for, for office who, with a megaphone, was talking about how dangerous Muslims are. Mm. And it, it's that rhetoric combined with the nonstop media cycle of, uh, you know, covering these attacks, that really does have an impact. Mm. Hence why it's so critical um, that journalists are part of the, the those that you are looking to influence or to be to be made aware uh, of the, the data that you have. So. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, we, we launched this, uh, I guess, this project four or five months ago, we've been working on it, as I said, for around 10 months, mm-hmm. collecting the data. And, and um, I think we've had something like 30,000 people who have, who have, you know, been on our site looking at it. It's been covered by, I think, around uh, uh, 12 to 15 different media outlets. So it's gotten, you know, good coverage. Uh, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, these, uh, you know, this kind of data uh, usually only gets covered or becomes interesting when, you um, you know, when bad things happen. But, uh, right. you know, it is a resource hub. It's something that is it's good for a whole, uh, you know, a whole range of uh, stakeholders. And I certainly hope that, you know, Muslim communities across the country use this to yes. engage their, their own elected officials to say, hey, look, here's what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I should add one more point here about our data set, that we were very conservative in what we included. So we... Uh, our criteria, which we explain in the FAQ section, uh, is, is um, clear, but, but we don't include incidents unless there's clear anti-Muslim bias. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that there's not a police report or a court report or some report um, that suggests there's anti-Muslim bias. We don't include it. Uh, doesn't mean that, that it, 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 you know, it wasn't you know, uh, an anti-Muslim incident. It just means that we don't have evidence of that. And so, um, you know, there was a horrible incident in Northern Virginia where a young woman was, was killed during Ramadan. Uh, she was abducted and murdered, and, and um, you know, it wasn't recorded. There's no re- reporting of it being a hate crime. 
so we don't include it. And so there's all kinds of horrible incidents out there that aren't included in this. And, and my point is that I think things are much worse than than the than our project actually shows. And, mm. You know, one final point on this: I I was in Houston back in January um, conducting a focus group, and I asked uh, some youth, uh, some male youth. I said, um, "How how bad would you you know describe?" Uh, anti-Muslim activities here, and uh, one young man said, "Well, not so bad." Another young man said, "Yeah, I agree. It's I, I don't I don't think it's a problem." And uh, someone else in the room said, "Well, on a scale of of you know one to ten, with ten being you don't want to leave your house, how bad is it?" And the the one young man said, "Oh, it's probably a six. And the other kid said six and a half. And I said, "Can you give me some examples?" He said, "Oh, yeah. Someone threw a, a, a full can of Coca-Cola through." my mom's window when we were driving. The other kid talked about his sister having her veil ripped off. Mm. And I mention this because those are crimes that I just, that, that, they, that they listed. But if they didn't report them, and they didn't report them, uh, we don't know about it. And worse yet, if they're not reporting it, why? You know, is it because these incidents are becoming normalized? And, and I think there's, there's a real possibility that that's the case, and so I, I think things are worse than what our uh, project actually uh, um, shows. So very conservative numbers. And for those um, who are listening, and um, once again, would you give the areas that you cover? There, there are five areas, right? Yes, yeah, so we look at five areas. We look at anti-Sharia legislation, mm -hmm. um, largely because this is about trying to um, gin up fear among uh, certain um, communities. Opposition to refugee resettlement, and we include this because this was a huge issue in 2015 and 16 as a result of uh, the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, the third category is opposition to mosques, Muslim cemeteries, and schools. And this category is largely about zoning and other creative legal means to try and obstruct the building of mosques, Muslim cemeteries, and schools. Uh, the next category is anti-Muslim actions and statements by uh, elected and appointed officials at the state and local level. And then the final category looks at anti-Muslim violence and crimes. Um, so those are the five categories that we look at. And, um, you know, collectively, uh, it, it certainly demonstrates that um, there's been a huge increase in activities. Um, that um, are in relation to the last election cycle. Mm. Well, this is great, and I know you said that um, uh, that this is not activism. Uh, there are a lot of folks, myself included, who would beg to differ. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> extremely, extremely important, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about it. Uh, we are definitely going to uh, post this on our site, uh, the link. Uh, this is yeah, I mean, like I said, it's all about the silver lining. I think that's that's the best thing to, to try to take from this. But we really thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Bobby. It was great to be on the show. And uh, I hope to come on again. I, I should just end by saying that, uh, you know, the next project that I'm launching, we're doing two things, if, if you can just please, uh, please, spare please. me for a minute. Uh, one is going to look at... Uh, um, Hate, hateful content on Twitter targeting Muslims and other minority communities, and that will launch that in, in uh, September. And then in, uh, in the lead-up to the, to the election, the midterm elections in November, 
um, we're going to be doing a, a national um, uh, survey that looks at, uh, you know, deep dive uh, look at um, Americans' views of Muslims. So we've got those two projects that are uh, in the immediate future. So if folks want to look at those, um, please come to uh, New America's website. Okay. Well, thank you, thank you once again. I really hope that that, that we can uh, have you back on to talk about that. Thanks for having me. So, it's been a great pleasure. All right. All right, Radio Islam family. Uh, that was Robert Bobby McKenzie, uh, senior fellow at New America and director of its Muslim Diaspora Initiative. And you can get more information uh, if you'd like to go to the site yourself uh, at newamerica.org. That's newamerica.org. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a minute. The International Museum of Muslim Cultures and History in Jackson, Mississippi, hosts a historic national conference in partnership with the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Millsaps College, Tougaloo College, Sound Vision, and with support from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation titled Race, Class, and Religious Intersectionality in America, an Ongoing Struggle for Human Dignity. This is a candid conversation including presentations by over 70 scholars, activists, elected officials, and thought leaders taking up the ongoing struggle for human dignity in the American experiment. The conference takes place September 6th through the 9th at the Western Jackson, located at 407 South Congress Street, Jackson, Mississippi. Registration is $245 for adults or $450 per couple, $170 for students 13 to 21, and children under 13 are free. Register and find more information at muslimmuseum.org. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every evening from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, and you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. Okay? So if you miss the live broadcast, you can subscribe to the podcast. So that's wherever you are. If you're on uh, iTunes or TuneIn, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, we are pleased to jump right into our discussion tonight. Our guest uh, joining us on the phone is Jelani Hussein. Um, he is the executive director of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations. That's CARE Minnesota. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of background really quickly. Uh, Hussein appears regularly on Minnesota's local television and radio stations. He's also appeared on national and international outlets, including ABC News, CNN, Fox Business, NPR, BBC, among other outlets. Uh, he holds degrees in community development and city planning from St. Cloud State University and political science from North Dakota State University. We welcome you to the show. Assalamu alaikum. 
Thanks for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure. So in, in the position uh, that you're in as executive director of um, Minnesota's chapter um, of CARE, um, I first want to point out for, for those who may have, who, who just may not know, that Minnesota is home to the uh, to the largest population, uh, largest Somali population uh, in the country. So uh, what you mentioned as far as the the way that the population has increased, uh, it mirrors that of other ethnic groups that have come here um, where there's a I guess you could say a, a, a mass uh, community is established and then um, people begin to flock towards that. Uh, so, yeah, so there, there's not much different. I think it's important to I think it's important to articulate that uh, when people uh, oftentimes they look at immigration um, and not look at it as a kind of a, a universal process that happens, you know, regardless of what the ethnicity uh, is, that it kind of follows the same, uh, same, a similar pattern, I should say. Um, what could you talk a bit about the cohesion? Because you mentioned that there are also between the Liberi- Liberian and you mentioned the Ethiopian um, uh, community as well. Uh, what is the, what does the cohesion look like between these different aspects of the community? And then, of course, we also know we have you know the the, uh, the African American um, right. community, and I'm sure that there are also um, there, there are other uh, aspects to that that demographic um, of the Muslim community. What what does that cohesion and and uh, cooperation look like? Please. So mainly, you know, these communities have um, historically. Uh, made efforts to work together, uh, and I think what we're seeing now is the second generation uh, really playing into to this part. You know, to, to to kind of solving the the gaps that the the first generation communities often are engaged in. So, you know, um, for example, you know the Black Lives Matter uh, leaders and some of the core activists. You can find uh, that they are not. Uh, just, just the traditional African American community, but actually, they're <clears throat> a very mix of these immigrant community uh, and their children actually being uh, the leaders and the um, the voices of the of the movement. So that and that's that's I would say is the more hopeful and uh, positive sign we see in the future. Mm. Okay. Now, when it comes to issues that define immigrant communities in particular, those are generally. Um, to a degree, language always seems to play a part in that. Um, the ability to, uh, whether whether a person speaks uh, the, the the language of their new land uh, fluently or they're, they're learning, uh, and th- that can bring about that can bring about some difficulty in, as far as becoming uh, settled and getting comfortable. Um, is that is that also present uh, within uh, the 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 Muslim community? Uh, in Minnesota, is that one of the issues that that you find that you have to uh, take into consideration and in how you uh, advocate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's, you know, it's almost every every immigrant population goes through the same the same type of um, challenges that previous immigrant populations have went through. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uniqueness aspect always is how can you expedite. Uh, some growing pains by benefiting from other immigrant population and, and over time. So, you know, um, and also, you know, what type of resiliency each community brings and what are areas that they would be successful in. Uh, and so, traditionally in America, the first immigrants 
uh, have always been hardworking because of the nature. They have always are working in very difficult working environment. Mm-hmm. But they also produce, you know, a good second ge- second generation that's extremely innovative. In fact, fifty uh, percent of all Fortune 500 companies in the United States were uh, started by immigrants or their children. So. Wow. Um, this is kind of the nature of that. However, I think the overall uh, challenges of getting used to uh, a new environment um, and even just the, you know, the particularities of di- identity and identity issues and cultural issues, those are really the issues that people often struggle with. Um, and particularly you, you see being played out in, in the youth um, uh, and, and the dynamic between uh, you know the, the the parents and the children, um, and and that's where we see the struggle to be even much more evident. But as far as uh, the overall, you know, uh, getting used to where you live and getting used to the, the the challenges that exist, I think oftentimes is how can you expedite the learning curve by learning from others and 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 being in this kind of supportive and engagement process that would help people. Um, um, uh, be much more in line with learning from others, so that their their learning curve is much shorter. Right, right. Um, can you? And this may be off track a little bit, but I, I'm I'm curious because of your background with uh, in community development, city planning, you know, the, holding degrees uh, in those uh, those areas. Um, how does that, or, or, or does it? How does impact? How does that impact your? Um, your, your vision and the way you execute your, um, you know, your role uh, as the um, uh, ED for uh, CARE Minnesota? Well, you know, number one, uh, when you're uh, someone who is who understands urban planning and city planning, you understand the challenges that often exist with new purchases of land, new mosques going up, you know, and even just even the idea of community planning and having a comprehensive plan, a plan for the Muslim community and, and all of that in general, you know, just like, you know, uh, which community is being served, which community is not being served, what are the services available. Um, you know, there's a, there's a planning aspect in city planning that's much more applicable to everything. Mm-hmm. And then I think in the, in the general sense of, you know, buying a building versus finding a redevelopment project and, and utilizing more of the funding to, to redevelop areas. And that's, an, that's one thing that many Muslim communities do not think about. When they consider, you know, growth in in, in masjids, getting another mosque, mm-hmm. many people are going to go the what I consider the realtor route, or uh, you know, going to a realtor and trying to get a building from from that perspective. But you know, in most urban areas, you can find redevelopment projects that are shovel ready, and if you have the the same amount of money, you would have bought a building. You could actually rehab a building and have it much more. Uh, your money may go even further mm. if you're willing to take that, and so. Uh, and then, in general, you know, just understanding uh, comprehensive plans, understanding, uh, in fact, for most communities, you know, they always think that their masjid um, is a nuisance to the community, that, that they're always begging to be accepted. Because this is a huge issue right now. That, you know, there's a lot of communities that are thinking about growth, you know, as, our, as the Muslim community grows. And most people don't realize the history of urban planning as it relates to masjids. And this is something part of the work at CARE. We try to educate uh, people, a little bit more about that, which is one that, um, you know, if you look at any any uh, city or any any traditional or, uh, map for zoning, uh, a church uh, or a mosque 
mm-hmm. are always um, uh, welcomed in most restrictive uh, zoning uh, ordinances or zoning areas. So even uh, R1 residential, which is one house, one door, one family, mm-hmm. which is the kind of the, the, the lowest of the, or the basic base of, of housing uh, zoning, uh, you allow a mosque to go there or a church or a school. So those, those, so what, what, pretty much what I'm saying is that a mosque is always the most friendliest item to go into anywhere. In fact, you can even, even you can go into an industrial park. Mm-hmm. So when you look at uh, communities or when you look at today churches, where are the churches and where are the schools? They're right inside neighborhoods. They're inside, you know, uh, single-unit uh, uh, homes. Right. So I, I, my role, I guess, uh, you know, bringing this knowledge base and trying to educate, you know, we've had cemeteries that have been denied in Minnesota, um, uh, and they were the, the, the town commission denied them. Uh, and again, all these were lawsuits away, and eventually uh, we legally challenged them, and, and we've won. Uh, but again, through the process, kind of educating the community around planning and zoning uh, in a way that they understand the power behind these rules and also the history behind the the uh, how these policies were used to uh, discriminate and to create segregation in, in communities. Right, very, very similar. We, when we think about um, Chicago, we would talk about redlining um, and the history of you know the the migration of African Americans you know from the South and then being relegated to the uh, South and West sides and then having the uh, social services pulled from those areas and paying exorbitant rents and yeah so absolutely right, right that's all a part of uh, that's all a part of urban planning the urban planning we don't really like to talk about but it certainly is a part of it um, oh absolutely I mean the entire highway systems were based on getting yes. African American and, and uh, poor white folks neighborhoods I mean, in fact in Minnesota there's a you know one of our highways makes a weird turn somewhere. Mm-hmm. and uh, Highway 35W. And when it makes that turn, the history is, tells us that that community right there said no, and that was a white community, and that's when the highway turned. And probably spent millions of dollars making that curb. And in fact, it caused such a huge uh, um, uh, you know, traffic issue that every you know, 10 to 15 years, 20 years, it gets reevaluated mm-hmm. because of the turn. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, absolutely. This is, this, urban planning is, is really a huge part of civil rights and civil rules. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and today it still continues when our mosques are being denied by towns saying that, you know, they don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's one thing, and of course it's an important thing, to know the rules, to know zoning, to know uh, what opportunities are available, you know, if you're talking about redevelopment or, uh, you know, different land usages. Um, those are things that are important to know. So that education, it's important. Uh, but it leads me uh, into the next uh, thing, and that is having the agency or uh, having the ability to be a part of the of, of, of crafting policy, of, of writing, uh, of passing legislation, right, this idea of civic engagement. Um, can we talk a bit about, because I know, uh, many of our listeners are familiar with um, Ilhan um, Omar. They're familiar with Keith Ellison. Um, but can you talk to, talk, talk to us about the, the this civic engagement that I think from the outside we, it, it appears that there's there's a there's there's more traction. There's more um, uh, there's more energy from the Muslim community in particular uh, in Minnesota right now. 
Absolutely. I mean, Minnesota, I think, uh, unlike other um, areas where Muslims do live and actually have a bigger population-wise, uh, have yet to, uh, you know, to elect someone who looks like them, who is going to fight for um, all of the people in their constituents. But, you know, so I think Minnesotans are very proud, and especially the East African community and Mm-hmm. Um, that lives in the 5th District, which uh, 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 Brother Keith Ellison, who became the first con- congressman, uh, first ever Muslim congressman in the history of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, to be elected. And he came from a district that had a lot of, a large number of East Africans who mobilized for him and voted for him. And uh, So Minnesota, historically, even then till now, has been, uh, you know, there's been a kind of a, a surgeon to that. We have a city council member who's also Muslim. We have a number of people who serve on school boards. Uh, but uh, Ilhan Omar this past year, 2016, became the first Somali uh, legislator uh, in, the, in the United States, and, and particularly in Minnesota. And that has really also inspired more. And obviously, 2016 election and what happened, mm-hmm. I think not only in Minnesota, but across the country, you're starting to see Muslims step up um, and, and take leadership. Uh, in in uh, not talking about politics, but actually engaging in a way that that means meaningful. And, and with that said, we're not only seeing Muslims engage in the Democratic Party, uh, but we're also seeing uh, an actually a, a tremendous increase in activism within the Republican Party. So in Minnesota, we've noticed that there is a large number of Muslims that have uh, participated in the state caucusing program at the caucuses as well as even the, the convention. So, um, but now this year we have a number of races where Muslims uh, are more than likely uh, have a, a really good chance of winning state representative seats. Um, so Ilhan's old seat, there's a gentleman who's been running there, Mahmoud, who has a, with a legitimate chance of winning. Um, and then we have a couple of other seats that have been vacated recently due to retirements that Muslims, uh, Muslim candidates are uh, pretty much the main or front runners in those seats as well. So uh, by the end of this uh, 2018 election cycle, we will see more than uh, Ilhan. And Ilhan, since uh, Keith Ellison had just stepped down from the Congress and now he's running for the state uh, attorney uh, general uh, for the state of Minnesota position, yeah. uh, the 5th District has opened up and Ilhan has their hat in there and seems to be an early frontrunner and, and won the the the, um, uh, the convention endorsement for for that. But the primaries are actually this Tuesday, this upcoming Tuesday, mm-hmm. and so we will find out uh, how she fares and uh, how others who are running in this race will also fare uh, in, in in those seats. Um, so a lot of a lot of exciting things happening. Uh, we also think Keith Ellison's. Uh, Probably also has a has a chance of becoming the state you know the state of Minnesota uh, attorney general. Um, and as many of you have heard, uh, you know this past uh, uh, week also um, the first female uh, Muslim congressman in the history of the United States seems to be having her path uh, from Den- from uh, Detroit. Yes, um, Rashida. Uh, so I, yeah, so I think there is a lot of positive that's happening. Um, I, I would just say, you know, one of the things that Muslims have to be mindful of is, you know, uh, uh, you, you know, we, we uh, there, there's you have to you have to run for office. I mean, that's that's it just it just has to happen. Um, and then the other thing is, even if you don't run for office, 
you have to actually go meet these elected officials. And that's the thing many people don't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, so if you voted and uh, you voted in, in the primary, but you also voted in the general election, you just did the most basic, you know, uh, thing. you got to now go meet with the state legislator. you got to hold uh, these uh, elected officials to, to power. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of them spend majority of their time meeting with lobbyists. Yes. And it's not because... Um, they have no time for you. In fact, they prefer to meet real people from their district than lobbyists. But real people don't want to meet uh, because they don't see the value in that. Um, and these are human beings, so you have to go meet with them, build a relationship with them. Uh, and I think that's one of the ways we have to do. And, and I almost would encourage, um, you know, particularly in one of the parties that we see less Muslims in the, in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. for those people who, who see you know, themselves in that party that they should engage in those folks. Uh, uh, the areas where you're not engaging are more than likely the areas where it's easy for people to mobilize against you. And, and that's what's happening, particularly in the Republican Party. So um, Muslims really are, you know, just because President Trump and his policy and his administration again doesn't mean the Republican Party is a throwaway. Or, and so that's that's, of course that's one area that I would give a recommendation to, particularly a lot of Muslims make sure that, that they are more engaged in the parties as well as also in the election, but also meeting their state legislators and leaders from the city to the county to, you know, the school board. Uh, in fact, we've noticed that there's a large number of Tea Party uh, members who have become school board members, um, you know, and that's really? hugely dangerous. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Very dangerous for our communities and, and, and particularly um, uh, around this anti-Muslim uh, narrative which which has come out in Minnesota we had two particular school board members that were making anti-muslim uh, um, comments and had it on their social media uh, and eventually with public pressure they resigned but um, but again that's a that's a very easy place for people to start um, their path to, to to in the political world yeah absolutely now um, with, with uh, I think the most notable change being uh, uh, Congressman uh, Keith Ellison now running for, I shouldn't say most notable, mo- no most noticeable, but a definitely uh, important change. Him running for Attorney General, um, and with the work that 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 Care does, you know, a part of that, uh, I guess, a good part of that work is um, is, is is offering legal support. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see? Um, how do you see uh, Brother Keith Ellison's? Uh, attainment of that position, right? You know, inshallah, you know, with the law's permission, he, he'll get that position. Uh, but how do you see that translating into more effective, or do you see it translating off the bat into more effective uh, ag- advocacy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean Keith, Keith has been, you know, someone who has uh, played a lot of different roles in the state of Minnesota. And he himself is being an attorney, you know, who has done uh, public defender, there's a lot of different things, and um, you know he's he's interested in really again taking his leadership uh, to the state, uh, you know, attorney's office, and becoming someone who fights uh, for uh, the people. I mean, he joined politics uh, to to fight for the fight for all, fight for the you know for livable wages, you know, fighting for. Uh, you know, and so he, you know, he's going to take that type of advocacy into the, uh, you know, the state of Minnesota 
uh, attorney general's office, and and these positions are very important. Uh, yes. These are the, you know, with the state power and resources, you can uh, go after greed, you can go after corruption, you can go after fraud, you can go after a lot of things that are hurting, uh, particularly the most vulnerable of the state's population, which is mainly, uh, you know, uh, the lower working class and their families and and particularly younger kids and their families and also the newer immigrant communities who often um, don't know their rights and, 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 and businesses and corporations take advantage of them, and you know, apartment complexes. And so, you know, um, uh, having somebody who is very passionate in that position and not always uh, just a legal, uh, you know, focused uh, person, I think definitely gives a new change even in that in that in that office and I think Keith will do an amazing job um, and I think it's a good stepping stone for him too that if, if he if he wins this election uh, it's possible that he might be the next US Attorney General in a in a in a in a different administration mm, that would that would be that would be something would love to see that would love to see that well uh, brother Jelani we appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us and um, Definitely are, are praying for your continued success uh, and hope that we can check back in with you uh, in, in the near future. Well, Brother Tariq, thank you for having me and uh, for all the listeners out there. Uh, you know, I just would just say that, uh, uh, you know, don't don't sit on the uh, on the couch and expect things to change. You know, get involved in your community, get involved in your in your local community organizations and uh, be visible and be able to make a change and difference. And so we're praying for you guys too. I know we always hear the, this horrible news coming out of Chicago about the, uh, the shootings and all of that. And I just feel like, yeah. you know, uh, we, we can't, we can't just sit silent, do nothing about it. So we're praying for you guys and hopefully things will improve there as well. Inshallah. Much appreciated, bro. All right. All right. Like all right, Radio Islam family, uh, that was Jelani Hussein. He is the executive director of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, Minnesota. Um, well, we thank you for tuning in. Uh, at this point, we want to go ahead and thank our engineers over at WCEV, uh, and we thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of the Sound Vision Foundation. All right, family, that being said, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.